Father, we bring nothing uh, with us to uh, earn your merit when you save us. And, and Lord, when we come to worship, it's with empty cups we bring also. We are entirely dependent on you. Lord, whether it's in receiving salvation or if it's just hearing what you have to say to each one of us today. And Lord, we would ask that your spirit would present the truth from your word so that when we leave today, we know we've heard from you. We're taking something of yours with us. And Lord, when we worship, we pray that your spirit would help us there too, just to declare the things that are true of you. We know that we are liberated from ourselves Lord, we are caught up more into the people you call us to be when we declare those things that are true of you. So we simply and humbly submit ourselves to you in your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When Paul was uh, winding down a section of Romans, an important theological segment uh, talking about election and God's ways and salvation, he exclaims, uh, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Now, he says that in part because some of the things Paul's already talked to us about in Romans, they don't go along with the way we would do things. They're hard to figure out. In fact, Romans 9, 10, 11 are some of the are stumbling blocks for many people theologically. So Paul's talking about things God has done, how he's done them. And he says his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. God thinks in ways we don't think. He does things in ways we would not choose to do. And in the arena of how he was going to bring about salvation to us, think of a few of the things, the choices God made in this arena about bringing deliverance to you and to I. So way back in Genesis, you know, after the flood and the Tower of Babel's risen, and God's going to sort of start over, and he's going to start somewhat of a new race of man. He's going to start a a line of promise from which he'll bring the Messiah. And so when he's going to start this new group of people, he chooses a couple that cannot have children, an infertile couple, at least the wife, Sarah, we know. Abraham and Sarah, I want to start a new race of men, and so I choose a couple that can't have children. That wouldn't have been my choice, first or last. Or think of this, when uh, Sarah has a miracle child, you know, because Sarah's the one that can't have children, when Sarah has the miracle child Isaac, Isaac gets married, and he has two little boys, Esau and Jacob. And, you know, if you just read their description, Esau's a strapping man's man. He's a hunter, he's a capable guy, he's out in the woods getting dad game, you know, to eat. Jacob, Jacob's a mama's boy, he's a domestic guy. So who does God choose to carry on this line of promise? You know, the man's man or the mama's boy, he chooses the mama's boy. And I'm like, what's with that? That is not the way I would do it. Or think about later, Jacob, you know, guys, I don't recommend this, as two wives two concubines, and he has 12 children. Now, the line of promise has got to come through him. So does the line of promise come through Jacob's favorite wife, the beautiful Rachel, through her two children? And it doesn't, of course. It comes through Leah, the, the undesired wife, the, the wife with weak eyes. That's, that's the one that produces Judah and the line of promise. You can see where this is going. Each time God makes a choice, it doesn't make sense to me. 
or to most of us. Think of this too. Go on down a few hundred years, you know, the children of Israel, Abraham's descendants, they're in Egypt, they've multiplied. There's a whole lot of them now. And God says, it's time to keep my promise to Abraham, my friend. I'm going to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And so I need a spokesman. I need a mouthpiece that's going to address Pharaoh and my people, the Israelites, there in Egypt. So when God says, I need a spokesman and a mouthpiece, who does he choose? You know, he chooses a guy that says, Lord, gosh, I'm so sorry, but I stutter badly. I'm not a good speaker at all. And that's Moses. It's crazy. You know, later when God's going to choose a new king to replace King Saul, Saul's not a good king. You know, the first king, not a good king. But he represents the nation's choice. But he's going to replace him. And so God says to Samuel the prophet, hey, run on down to Jesse's house. He's got some sons, and one of those sons is my choice for the next king. So Samuel's down in Jesse's house, and Eliab, one of his elder sons, walks in. Now, this is another man's man. This is a tall, good-looking guy. He looks capable, articulate, handsome. And when he walks in, Samuel says to himself, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. This has got to be him. He looks kingly. He looks the part. God says, Well, no, that's not him. You know, this is the famous passage, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And they've got to run out and get Junior from the back 40 because little youngest baby son David, he's not even there. He's not even a consideration. And God says, that's my man. What? You've got to be kidding. And then later again, when the line of promise meets its fulfillment a couple thousand years ago, when God the Son takes on our humanity in the incarnation and is born into the world, he's not born into the halls of a palace. He could have been because he was royal, right? He's the descendant of kings. But no, he's born in a stable. And he's born to a little girl who hails from up north, the dusty streets of Galilee. That's the wrong side of the tracks in Jesus' day. You know, what is with this? What problem does God have with choosing some competent people? The kind of choices you and I would probably make. Time after time after time, he's choosing the weak. The nobodies, what is with that? And that's exactly what Paul addresses today in 2 Corinthians 12. If you've got a Bible, feel free to turn there. A few verses this morning. We've been in some mega passages here in 2 Corinthians lately. Just verses 7 through 10 this morning. Paul tackles this whole issue of why does God make the choices he does and and also why does God allow some of the things in our life that he does, that he allows. And guys, beyond that, why in the world does God intentionally bring into our lives some of the things he does there too? Study sheet or Bible, this is from the New American Standard, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. If you remember, Paul's been talking in his fool speech And he's trying to get the Corinthians to accept him as their apostle and leader just so that they can be blessed. But he's got opposition, what he calls the pseudo or super apostles. And so he's compared notes with them and he says, hey, if they want to brag, I can brag too. And he's been bragging. His bragging's not quite like theirs though. His bragging is about all the ways he's suffered and the cost he's paid as a disciple and an apostle for Jesus. And then one of the last things he said as his qualification was, these guys claim this super spiritual 
attitude or abilities or experiences. And Paul says, well, I've had one of those too. I've been to heaven. I don't know if it was just spiritually or physically, but I've been to heaven. And I've seen things and I've heard things I can't even tell you, I can't even talk to you about. But I've been there. And that's where he picks up here. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations there in heaven, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Before we get to the weakness passage specific, we'll look at a couple of points first. The first point, looking back at verse 7, and notice the repetition. He says, because of the greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, to keep me from exalting myself. God says, my my friend Paul is going to be tempted to exalt himself, to fall into the sin of pride because of what he's seen in this super experience he's had that no one else has had. And so God says, my concern for my man Paul is to keep him from exalting himself. Now think about this for just a minute. You remember his fool speech about his boasts? You know, five times he's received 39 lashes, he's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been starving, he's been betrayed. You know what I mean. The list just goes on and on 24 different ways, we said, in which he'd suffered for Christ. Well, that wasn't enough to keep him humble. So God does his friend Paul a favor and he gives him a thorn in the flesh. And the Greek there just means something that's very pointed and sharp. It could be like a thorn on a plant, but it could also be a stake that's been sharpened on the end, you know, something that you'd poke into the ground. But it's something sharp so, you know, you'd feel it. And God, who loves Paul, has given him this painful tormenting element in his life for Paul's benefit because he loves him. And I'm thinking, you know, show me a little less love, Lord. I'm not feeling it here. Uh, Torment means to strike with the fist, to give a blow, to maltreat, to treat with violence. So because God loves Paul, he gives him this element in his life that feels like somebody is beating him and poking him with a sharp object. And that's because God loves him. Wow. If you read commentaries or if you listen to people who teach on this passage, there's guesses all over the place about what is the thorn in the flesh. What did that look like specifically? And nobody knows. This is as specific as we get. And this I find interesting. Uh, Paul's quite clear that the thorn, whatever it looked like, whatever someone else could see or if he was, were to describe it, we don't know all that. But we do know, he says, the thorn is a messenger from Satan. It's an angel. That's the term messenger. So we would say it's a demon, an angel from Satan, two kinds of angels. You know, the good ones, they still serve God. The bad ones, we call those demons and they follow Satan. So God lovingly gives Paul a demon to torment him, to beat him. Does this sound 
counterintuitive? It is, isn't it? And guys, we're not going in this morning to say what can and cannot happen to a Christian in the spiritual realms about, about all this. I'm just saying, Paul makes it clear, whatever it looked like, this was a demon on assignment from God to Paul the Apostle. And the effect on his life was he's beating him and he's poking him and he's sticking him and it's torment and it's painful and it doesn't stop. Wow. Wow. God loved Paul so much that he blessed him with pain and with weakness. This passage is not specifically about pride, but this struck me so forcefully this week as I was thinking about this. Just think of the implications here for just a second. God found it preferable to give Paul constant pain rather than to allow him to fall into the sin of pride. That says a lot about what God thinks about pride. It's so debilitating. It's such a cardinal sin that when we get lifted up in our own minds in pride, unlike most other sins, it has this effect of cutting us off from fellowship with God And frankly, cutting us off from rationality. You know, Jesus is the truth. When I get lifted up in pride, I start believing things that are not true. The proud lose their ability to perceive and to articulate truth to others. And God says, I would rather burden my children and the people I love with constant pain then allow them to fall into the sin of pride. This is striking to me. Pride is that grievous, destructive a sin that God loads Paul with this tormenting influence rather than allow pride to get hold of his life. I'm thinking that raises pride, the issue of pride, in my view, to a whole new height as far as being something that we're careful of, something that we avoid intentionally. Pride is a key sin of the Corinthian church, the folks Paul's writing. And they still think very highly of themselves, and they're still judging things by the world's way of judgment. And so they're boasting of themselves, and they're boasting of these pseudo-super apostles because on the outside they look important. They look capable. They don't realize that in that attitude of pride, they're actually opposed to God. You know, James and Peter both say the same thing, that God is opposed to the proud, but he'll give grace to the humble. And God wanted Paul to remain in a position of humility so that he could give him more of his grace. When we're proud, when we get lifted up, there's this oppositional influence we're going to face from our dad because pride is so destructive, so debilitating, so blinding, leads us out of rationality and truth. And think of this. Paul has been using himself as an example throughout both of the letters to the Corinthians as an example of Christ. And the Messiah that the Corinthians have believed in was the suffering servant. And so Paul's making sure that the Corinthians know Paul suffers, but guess what? So did Jesus, so did the one that Paul represents. So who is Paul, or who are you and I, to take on some attitude of pride when Jesus, the one that came to save us, did not? When the one who could have claimed some greatness or loyalty 
did not, how can we or how could Paul do what his master had not done? And that's the thought. Paul's trying to remind them the Savior you follow was the suffering servant. He was crucified. You know, when you read Philippians 2, it's clear that the Son of God humbled himself when he came from heaven to earth. And he didn't just come to earth, he became a man. He didn't just become a man, he became a servant. He didn't just become a servant, he became the vilest or the lowest form of criminal because he was crucified on the cross. So Paul's making it clear, I follow a crucified Savior. I have no appeal to pride. There's no right for me to claim something is coming from myself, and neither do we. This pride, this sin of pride is so huge an issue that God would rather us deal with pain and torment as Paul did rather than be given in to the sin of pride. That's instructive for me. The second point he makes in verse 8, and you can imagine, put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a second, or maybe you don't have to. You know, maybe right now in your own life you feel like you're getting beat up or you're getting poked or you're getting prodded or you're facing some acute trial or challenge. What do you do when the bottom falls out of your life? If you're a Christian, don't you pray? Don't you go to God and say, Lord, I've got a problem. Would you mind taking care of this? We'd go to God and pray, right? And that's what Paul does. So in verse 8, he says concerning this, concerning this buffeting and tormenting and this sharp, harmful, painful thing in my life, Paul says, hey, I went to the Lord and I implored. I didn't just pray. I was begging. I was begging God three times that it might leave me. So Paul goes to God once. Lord, you know, this thing's going on. What's going on? Would you mind taking care of this? No, no answer. No relief. Does it again? Does it a third time? Does that sound familiar three times, asking God for relief from suffering? It sounds familiar to me. So you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's facing suffering and he prays how many times? Three times. Father, you know, if there's any way I can avoid this cup of suffering, that would be great. But not my will yours be done. Paul goes to God three times. Lord, do you mind taking care of this thing for me? Would you mind getting rid of this torment, whatever it looks like? Uh, Kids or adults, you know, if you're not feeling uh, the trials of life right now or if you don't feel tormented or poked or prodded or whatever, you know, don't worry. Uh, It's coming. It, It is coming. All of us experience trials and suffering in our life here. There's really, there's no way around it. And when those trials come, don't we go to God and don't we say, Lord, please deal with this thing and please take it away. This thing's too big for me. It's out of my control. Would you mind a little help here, please? And you know, Jesus tells us to pray, doesn't he? I mean, in the Gospels, and he not only tells us to pray, he tells us to continue in prayer. You know, keep asking, keep knocking, keep searching, right? You know, but three times Paul did that, and God said no. And I just think at some point, if we're taking those issues, those challenges we face in life to God repeatedly in prayer, and God is not saying yes to our appeal for some kind of relief, then I think there's a good chance that maybe our prayer and our outlook should change. And maybe we should say, Lord, what do you want to accomplish in this thing that we're going through right now or that I'm going through right now? 
I've asked for relief. You haven't given it yet. If you allow this thing to continue on, Lord, what are you doing? And how do I cooperate with that? Praying's always appropriate. Paul prayed. That was absolutely the right thing to do. And you know, sometimes God is going to give us relief. Sometimes some element of suffering comes into our life that isn't necessary. And God will take care of those. But sometimes God's going to leave them in our life because he's going to use them for our good. Now, you know it's easy to stand up here on a Sunday morning and and for us to sit here on Sunday morning. And if this is uh, hypothetical, if you're not feeling the heat or the pain right now, if it's hypothetical, it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, something to tuck in and remember later. You know, but if you're in the midst of pain and suffering and challenge or trial, it's a different matter. And you feel the heat and you feel the pain and you're looking for some pain relief. And you know, what often comes to our mind in this case, because we don't understand the way God works, is we start saying, "Uh, Lord, what in the world is wrong with you? Don't you love me? Don't you care? Lord, if you're good and if you're loving, why in the world would you allow evil in my life? This is, this is hurtful. This is plain wrong. God, what's wrong with you that you're allowing this? And you know, of course, this is one of the elements that uh, folks with challenges or questions come to. If God is good, if he's loving, especially if he's omnipotent, why is there evil in the world? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there trial? We won't answer all those questions this morning, but this is the thing that I come back to again and again. You know, the the crux of all of time in history is the crucifixion of the Son of God on planet Earth. When Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth on a cross, that is the, that's the heaven and hell and eternity, past, present, future, they all hinge at that point. And this is what I cannot get away from. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how badly the bottom falls out of my life or yours, no matter what the pain or suffering looks like, if I'm, a, if I'm in a World War II Europe and I'm losing all my loved ones, if I'm in whatever time or history you can think of, great suffering, great loss, uh, I cannot get away from this, that God the Son came to the earth and took on your sins and mine and died in our place. And he did so because God the Father loved us. And Paul makes this startlingly clear in Romans 8. That if God gave up that, the person, his son, whom he loved best, the best thing in all the universe, then he will give you any lesser thing if it's good for you. If he's given us his son, he won't withhold any lesser thing. So it cannot be a problem with God not loving us well enough to save us from these trials. Can't be that. He's perfect in his character. And God is in himself love. You know, it's hilarious. If we tell God he doesn't know how to love well enough, you're telling that which is love that he's not love. He he is love. 1 John 4, two times. God is love. The only reason we know anything about love is because we see a reflection of God. So he can't love us any better than he does. He can't love us any perfectly than he does. And so this means... If he allows a hard thing into your life or mine, it's not because he doesn't love us. He can't love us more. Sometimes, like in Paul's case, you know, God's actually actively giving him something 
hard and painful to keep him from pride. And God may do that for you and I. Other times, though, thinking back to Romans 8 again, God has promised there through Paul, he knew a little bit about suffering, ups and downs of life, that God would take everything in your life and mine, those who know Christ, and somehow in ways only God can, he would turn it around if it was something hard and harmful in itself even, God would turn it around and make it a blessing for us instead. Now, part of our problem with that in the whole arena of suffering is we want to see the goods and we want to see the benefit right here and right now. And that's just because we're short-sighted. You know, many of the early Christians prayed to end their lives as martyrs. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you know why? Heaven was so real to them. And the appeal of being with Christ and receiving rewards from Christ's hand were so real to them that they said, Lord, I'm ready. And I don't care about the pain of martyrdom. I'm ready to go and see you. Heaven for us tends to be sort of a distant thought. Life here is pretty good most of the time. Lord, heaven's my home. My dad used to say, but I'm in no hurry to get there. You know, that's sort of where we live. For them, it was real and it was immediate. Sometimes the gain, the benefit from that suffering, whether it was directly given by God or whether God simply allowed it, we're not going to see here in our life on the earth. We're going to see it in heaven. And we'll see and we'll understand what God was up to. Paul prayed to God for relief. And if you're, if you're experiencing trial and turmoil, absolutely, I encourage you, pray for relief. If you don't see it after repeated prayer, ask God, Lord, what are you up to? What is your grace to me in this situation? What does that look like? How do I cooperate? To the main point in this passage there in verses 9 and 10, God uses the weak. God said to Paul when he's appealing to him for help and for relief, My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. When I'm weak, Paul says, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong because instead of my supposed strength, it's God's real strength that comes through me. I become a vessel for something that has real strength. Now, you know, the Corinthians, I've said this repeatedly, I think they're the church that are absolutely most like the church in the West, not just the United States, but the church in the West today is the Corinthian church. They're shallow spiritually. They're carnal They love the pleasures of the world. Their minds have not been conformed to the truth yet. They're very shallow, very carnal. And so they're still judging things by the outward worldly appearance. So Paul had told them in his first letter, first chapter, verses 27 through 31, he said, hey guys, look in your own church, look in your own group. Who has God chosen? When you see the effects of salvation, who's in the church there in Corinth? And he says, well, it's the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, the despised things, so that no one can boast before God. No one will be able in pride to stand up before God and say, hey, God, I'm here because of my doing. I'm here on my account. Nope. Paul says, look in your own midst. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the proud. That's what he's doing. God's using the weak things of the world. Because then it's his power that's reflected through them. You know, in this whole arena, if you've become a Christian, and you know, the longer I've uh, been a Christian, 
Janet, I got saved October 5th, 1976 at the K-State Union. K-State holds a special place in my heart. Um, You know, the longer I go, I'm confronted, and, and frankly, with passages like this, I'm confronted that this is not at all what I thought I was signing up for at all. I thought I have a hole in my life when I became a Christian, and becoming a Christian is going to fill the hole. And, and it did. It did. And that was part of what God was after. I wasn't uh, intelligent enough, smart enough, wise enough to fear hell or the penalty of my sins, which were many, anything like that. I just knew I'm empty. When I heard the gospel, that's it. I get that. I'm empty. Christ is the answer to that. That sounds good, and I believe that. But you know, the longer you walk with God, the, the more often you start turning and saying, Lord, are you sure about this thing that's going on? This is not what I thought Christianity was about. Or, Lord, I thought I was doing a pretty good job, and I just feel like I got hammered. I was talking to a dad, oh, a few, several weeks ago, just about the way his own family's life got transformed, and he said, uh, he was hearing this guy speak, and he said, I just felt like the guy beat me up. His whole world got upended because the truth was different than he thought it was, and it just required this whole different way of thinking and looking. It required changes in the way they were living. And man, the longer I go, that's what I see in my own life. This is not what I thought it would be. It's, it's frankly, it's a lot, lot harder than I thought it would be. And you know, in God's economy, if you want to live, you've got to die, right? And if you want to rule, you have to serve. And if you want to be great, you must become small. If you want to be first, you must go last you want to become strong in the Lord, you must first recognize your weakness and say, Lord, I am weak. God uses the weak and the humble because that's when his strength is seen. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament in the book of Judges, and this is the story of Gideon, chapter 6, 7, and 8. You know, again, if I'm raising up a judge to deliver a people, I'm going to look for the big strong guy, you know, the natural leader, the guy that's going to rouse the troops, and off we go, right? So the Israelites, man, it's a tough time. The Midianites are whooping up on them. They're the bully of the block. And you know, every time the crops are coming in or the animals are out to pasture, the Midianites, they come and they take them. What's with that? I'm sure these guys are praying. And Gideon, Gideon, he's he's threshing out, he's beating out some grain. Now, you know, normally... If you were beating out the grain, you take your grain, you've harvested, you take it to a hilltop, and you beat it with sticks, or you have the animals walk over it, and as it is impacted, you know, the hull, the husk, the chaff comes off the kernel, you throw it up in the air, the wind, because it's a hilltop, the wind blows the chaff away, and you got the grain, pile of grain below. That's the way you'd normally do it, but Master Gideon, he's hiding in the wine vat getting just enough grain maybe for supper or breakfast or whatever. And he's there because he's afraid of the bullies. The Midianites are going to come and steal his grain otherwise. And this guy shows up. And it's not just any guy. It's an angel. It's not just any angel. It's the angel of the Lord. It's God himself. And he says, O mighty man of valor. And, you know, this is comical. What? You know, I'm sure Gideon's looking around. uh, It's just me. I'm the only one here. 
And by the way, if you didn't know, my family were the least, were the poorest, were the most insignificant family in the whole tribe of Manasseh. And by the way, not only that, I'm the least, I'm the youngest, I'm the least important in my family. You must mean someone else. And no, God says, you're my man. And this is what I want you to do. And though he's afraid, he pulls down the altar and the Asherah pole. And he upsets some folks. And God says, by the way, I want you to raise an army now and I want you to go out and take care of those Midianites and those Malachites. And so he does. And this is a timid guy. You know, Gideon's the one. He's got to have the fleece thing. Got to have that twice. He's got to have a dream confirmed. You know, he's mighty man of valor. He does not look the part. So he raises an army and he raises tens of thousands of men. They're going to take on the Midianites. They're going to push the bully off the block. This sounds good. But then there's a trouble because he's got his army and he's ready to go. Now, realize that his army, they're outnumbered at least four to one. They're outnumbered to begin with at least four to one. In fact, if you read the numbers, there's at least 120,000 foot soldiers. And it says when they look out over their camps, they look like grasshoppers covering the earth. There's so many of them. Sand of the sea, it says innumerable. Too many to count. We know there's a lot of them. At least four to one against Gideon's army. And God says, but Gideon, I have a problem. In Judges 7, 2, he says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful. And they would say, my own power has delivered me. Wow. So what does God do? They're outnumbered already, at least four to one. So God reduces them two more times till there's 300 guys. 300 guys. And you know the plan. I'm sure you all know the story. At night, we break the vases, the fire's inside. Every man has a bugle. And they all blow their bugles. And they all say, for the Lord or for Yahweh and for Gideon. And God, by his spirit, turns the... Midianites and the Amalekites against each other and they destroy each other. But here's Gideon. He's the least of the least of the least. And when he raises an army that's outnumbered at least four to one, God still says it's too many. Because I know you. And if, if the numbers are even remotely comparable, four to one's not enough of the bad odds, I'm going to do something so you know it's me and it's not you. You'll know that it was God who got the victory and not you. And that's why Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, verse 9, B in 2 Corinthians, I'll rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You know, we want to pump iron spiritually or otherwise. We want to be big and strong. We want to take on the bullies that come into life. We want to say, by my might, by my hand, by my power, I'll take care of this. Absolutely. And it's the wrong thing. And God says, I'm going to be at work through weak vessels so that you'll know it was me. It couldn't have been you. If you're not in a trial now, you will be seriously just because that's the way life is on earth. No way around it. When we're in the trial, what are we saying to God? If we, we pray for relief, that's absolutely appropriate and we should. If we pray repeatedly with no effect, I'd say we change prayers and say, Lord, what are you doing? How do you want to use this? And how do I cooperate with your plan, with what's going on? I want to close with a passage from the Old Testament again. This is from Isaiah 40. This is probably the best-known chapter in all of Isaiah, perhaps. It's quoted as often as any. I'll make some comments as I wind through it, but I'm picking up at verse 21 in Isaiah 40 through 31. And 
If you know Isaiah, you know the end of chapters, the 30 chapters, that's Hezekiah and its history and Hezekiah's deliverance. And chapter 40 sort of moves into the poetic portion of Isaiah. And the theme is deliverance, that God's going to deliver the nation of Israel. And along the line in this chapter, he's saying, and by the way, you've got some issues because you guys have been trusting in idols. You've been building statues by your own hand and your own might and your own power. And you're trying to come up with a way of deliverance based on what you can pull off. And that's the scene into which God speaks. And he says, don't you know? Haven't you heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? This means they should understand, but they don't. It is He, this is God, it is Yahweh, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God is so great and He's bigger than this, but if He could be given a form, He's so big and we're so small in comparison, it's like a giant looking down at bugs on the earth. God is so great compared to us and our stature. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. You know, we've got telescopes today. We can figure out, sort of, that as far as we know, there's no edge to the universe. Scientists today say it's it's infinite, that wherever the universe is, that's all the places that are, if that makes sense. Um, The heavens, the universe is so big, it's mind-boggling. We can't get our heads there. You know, you talk about distances of stars and light travel and and light years, the numbers are, you just give up. You can't get there. They're so big. And God says, those heavens, well, that's just a curtain I threw up. I just threw that little divider up. You know, it's easy. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Now, when he says this in verse 23, the rulers and the judges, guys, these are the ones that have power. These are the military folks. These are the politicians. These are the financially wealthy people, the judges and the rulers, God says. He reduces them to nothing. He makes them meaningless. And you know, in the financial catastrophe that's going on around the world, everybody's looking to the rulers of this world for help. You know, it's the EU and it's the German economy and here it's the Fed and it's presidential policy and one thing and another. And God says of the rulers and the powers in this earth, he says he just wipes them out when it suits him. And listen to how he describes this. Scarcely have they been planted, the most powerful among us. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. It's like a single grass seed. It just starts to bud up. The root just starts to go down. This is the most powerful among us. God blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. The most power you and I have, the most power available to humanity on the earth, to God, it's gone. That's how insignificant it is. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One, because they're building statues. They're following idols here. Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might, the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. You know, the stars to us, they're uncountable. We can't count them. In one galaxy, we can't count them. And God says, I know every one of them by name. They're all in order. They're right where they belong. 
and I'm leading them forth every day. Now, 27 is the crux. So God says, this is who I am. And now he addresses Israel, because this is what Israel, Jacob, called here, is saying. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you see where they're going with this? I've got a trial in my life. Life is not what I thought it would be. I'm not who I thought I would be. Lord, you're ripping me off. Don't you see what you should be doing in my life? It's as if you can't see me. It's as if you don't see and understand what's going on. This is a complaint against God. And then God responds with this, Don't you know? Because you don't. Haven't you heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He understands things you don't. He sees it all. You see it a little bit. God sees it all. And this is what God does. The one with all power and all might, speaking to little blades of grass, says, He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. Think of the NFL players. Think of the NBA players. Think of the fittest, strongest, fastest physiques you can. You know, they they play a game, they play a second game, whatever. They're going to wear out. The strongest among us. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Those who say, Lord, I am weak. I don't have it. They'll gain new strength. Now, check this out. They will mount up with wings like eagles. You and I can't fly. But in God's power, God says, I will bring you such strength that it will be as if you have the wings of an eagle and you fly through that thing that's going on in your life. In fact, this is reminiscent. Do you remember the Exodus? God said, it was as if I put you on the wings of an eagle when I took you out of the land of Egypt. You won't just run or walk. God says, you'll fly in my strength. You'll run and not get tired. You'll walk and not become weary. But guys, in your life and mine, God is out not only to break our idols, but he's out to break the notion that you and I are adequate in and of ourselves. Whatever's going on in life, God, apart from other things, all kinds of other things God may be doing. But when we're faced with things that are outside our control, we need to remember God doesn't want us to somehow rise up in our own strength to do something because Paul got it in my weakness. God pours out more grace. And when I'm weak, God pours in his strength. So the best thing for us to do is to say, Lord, I'm weak. Lord, here's this thing that confronts me. I don't have the ability to confront it. I can't overcome this thing. God, I humbly submit myself to you. I ask you to pour out more of your grace and show me the way you're using this redemptively in my life. Paul was boasting in his weakness because he knew in his weakness that's when God would pour into his strength. Father, help us to have the wisdom of Paul to recognize that our resources are inadequate for any of the things that face us in this life. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you as you said in that you called us to take up our cross daily. That's an end to all that we were or thought we had. 
Father, that's an acknowledgement that it's not what we bring to bear that's important in your economy, Lord, but it's your strength, it's your wisdom. Lord, help us to bow to your sovereign wisdom. Thank you that you love us above all things and that, Lord, you use even the hurtful things in this life for our good. Help us to trust you for those. In Jesus' name, amen.